Well, I can't believe this is my last shalom to y'all. Yeah, so the y'all came from our first four years of ministry. We were down in Miami, so it's shalom y'all down there, right? <laughs> no, really, Lori and I have really enjoyed being with you folks. Uh, Josh and David drove up with us from Chicago on Friday, a beautiful fall afternoon, and coming up to beautiful southern Wisconsin. Um, having a wonderful time of fellowship in the Fogelbach home. It's David's fault that I'm here, so if you are upset with uh, this series of messages, you can blame David. But David and Carol have been good friends for close to 20 years now, we think. Uh, Not that we think we've been good friends, we're not sure at the time. (laughs) Yes, And then we got to go out to dinner with your pastor, Pastor Chuck and Karen, and treated us to a wonderful meal and... uh, we, we got to learn a lot about ourselves because your pastor and his wife are more interested in us than in talking about themselves. Love, humility, and leadership. You guys are blessed to have the leadership that you have here. And then we were invited to Bill and Jan's home. What hospitable people they are. And last night, we got to go out to watch the Cubs. I mean, uh, eat dinner with uh, <laughs> Jack and Joan. And uh, that was a blessed time of fellowship. It's, it's going to be hard to say goodbye to you guys. Everything has been going so well. We're getting ready to worship and lift up. I love the songs that Gabe and the worship team have put together. You know, I don't know if you've paid attention, but they dovetail so great. In fact, that, that Getty song that we sang two songs ago, some of those lyrics that Townsend and Getty grabbed are directly from Romans 9, 10, and 11. And things are going so well, and I'm sitting here on the end, and Amber comes up to me and says, would you move your big body out of the way? I can't see the screen. <laughs> I haven't been so offended since a dietician said, you want to lose 10 pounds of ugly fat? Cut off your head. <laughs> Wanted to see her sign that. <laughs> yes. One of my best friends in high school, I grew up in New England, Lori and I are preacher's kids, and uh, one of my best friends in high school went to American School for the Deaf in Hartford, and uh, it was one of the great joys of uh, my young life. The first language that I learned to speak, other than English, was ASL. I've forgotten most of it by now, but I love watching gifted people communicate the gospel. So thank you, Amber, for serving that way. Okay, so we're on the home stretch here. On uh, Saturday night, we did the past. God chose Israel. God chose Israel. Yes, God chose Israel. You cannot read the book of Romans without seeing God's sovereignty. People struggle sometimes with God's sovereignty. We have a hard time letting God be God. Abraham asked, would not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer to that is emphatically yes. Yes. God can be trusted. No one is going to stand before the Holy One of Israel in that day and say, you were not fair. You were not just. It's not his justice that we really want. It's it's his mercy. And then this morning, we have already covered in Romans 10, the sad reality that national Israel rejected her Messiah. Sometimes people ask, what would have happened if, if the Jewish people had accepted Messiah. You remember Palm Sunday, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. He was there, the king of Israel, the son of David, who had for three years ministered and 
and fulfilled so many of the Messianic prophecies. When John, his cousin, was, was doubting in prison, are you the expected one or, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus sent the messengers back, not with the key to get John out of prison, no. No, John suffered martyrdom. The one who is the forerunner, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this one related by blood to the sovereign king of Israel would die in a horrible way, for a horrible reason. But Jesus, not sending back a message of you're getting out of jail, said, the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, I'm doing. The lame are walking and the blind are seeing. Jesus came in fulfillment. What would have happened if, if the nation that welcomed him on Palm Sunday was represented in that smaller group who before Pilate said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Well, the truth is that if the nation had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, then he wouldn't have been the Messiah because Isaiah prophesied of the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah writes in 53. But we want to look at why Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11. He's answering two critical questions, two important questions, not just for the early church of his day. Listen, Romans is the first of Paul's writings in our canon of Scripture. It's not the first letter that he wrote. It's probably the fifth, maybe the sixth of his letters that he's written. But it stands for us here at the front of the epistles, right after the history of the early church, which includes in Acts chapter 9, the wonderful account of this one who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a persecutor of the church, thinking that he was doing God a favor, trying to capture those who were proclaiming that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. There's this divine encounter on the road to Damascus, and his life is irrevocably changed, and our lives are much the richer because of his writings. And Paul, writing, deals with two questions that were important in his day and are not less important for us today. The first is, do Jewish people really need Jesus to be saved? I mean, these are the covenant people, right? These are the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the nation that God adopts. This is the nation that God uniquely calls his own the one little word, ami, in Hebrew, my people. God uses over 100 times, 120 times, if I remember correctly, that little word is used. And all but one time in context, he's referring to the Jewish people. And for those of you who always want to know what the exception is, it's in Isaiah chapter 19, where God's talking about the millennial kingdom when he says, in that day, Egypt, my people, Egypt, my people, and Syria, and Israel will be one. That's an amazing prophecy. I'm so glad that that's in there. But every other time except for the prophetic future, when God's talking about my people, he's talking about the people of Israel. So obviously, if God chose them, and he did, Deuteronomy 6 is very, or Deuteronomy 7, sorry, is very clear about that. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8, God tells of the reason that he chose the Jewish people. 
because the Lord loved you and because he kept the promises that he made to the fathers. And he's referring all the way back to the call of Abram in Genesis 12 and God's cutting the covenant in Genesis 15, the passages that we looked at on Saturday night. Do Jewish people need to believe in Jesus? It sounds sometimes like, as God's chosen people, don't Jewish people have a get-out-of-hell-free card, all you Monopoly players? And the answer Paul gives in Romans 9 and 10, and that's emphatically, no, they don't have a get-out-of-hell-free card just by being Jewish. The second objection is, well, isn't God through with the Jewish people? I mean, after all, the Messiah came, he was rejected. We will not have this man to rule over us. And so God rejected Israel, right? Well, that's what Paul's going to deal with in Romans 11. But first, as by way of background, remember this is Paul's longest and most theological letter. It's the one that has as its very theme, at the heart of the thread that runs throughout Romans is the gospel message. The gospel, salvation by grace through faith. The key verse, Romans 1.16, let's say it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He includes also verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The righteous will live by faith. We have a righteous God who acts righteously in sovereignly bestowing his righteousness on undeserving sinners such as you and me. Quick outline. Paul introduces himself in Romans 1, verses 1 to 17. An apostle to the Gentiles writing to the church at Rome, a church that he longed to get to. In all of his missionary journeys, he had not yet made it to Rome. When he finally does arrive, we know at the end of the book of Acts, he arrives as a prisoner, imprisoned by Rome. But he longed to go there, that he might impart to them some good gift. Sinful humanity is condemned, as Paul writes from verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news is that we have a God of grace who justifies. The Lord Jesus dies, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Justification is a huge, a huge theological nut that Paul cracks for us here. Verses, or chapters 4 and 5 particularly are, are rich in understanding our salvation. And sanctification, this idea of what happens to us as believers, whose citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. We've already been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son, and all the riches of heaven await us, but God leaves us here on earth to be his ambassadors. And because whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates, he doesn't leave us alone just because we're no longer in his kingdom. We're still here as strangers and aliens, and the God of this age continues his battle. And some of that battle is internal. It's the battle with sin. Paul deals with sin and sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. And I love how Paul, in his wisdom, includes wonderful verses in the 8th 
chapter be a great concluding chapter to a wonderful book. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 8, verse 1. And the most widely quoted verse in Romans is Romans 8, 28, right? God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he ends with that wonderful hymn of praise, what can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Jesus our Lord. If Paul had laid down his pen or quit dictating to his secretary, at the end of chapter 8, rolled up the scroll and sent it off to Rome, I think Romans would still be my favorite book in the New Testament. So rich. But Paul comes back from his lunch break and he picks up a theme that's important to him, and that's God's dealings with the Jewish people. And the church that he's writing to at Rome is a church that's comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And everybody's kind of struggling with these questions. Uh, Jewish people need to believe in Jesus? Because there are Jewish people in our community who don't yet believe in Jesus, but are they okay apart from believing in Messiah? Or, Or is God perhaps done with the Jewish people? Because every place Paul goes, he goes and preaches the gospel to the Jewish people, and most often he meets with opposition. In some cases, he's kicked out of the synagogue. In some cases, he's kicked out of town, as in Damascus, when he's let out over the wall in a basket, or in some cases, he's brought outside of town and stoned and left for dead. The greatest persecution that the Apostle Paul suffered was at the hands of his own kinsmen, and that's why it's so incredible that Paul opens up these chapters in Romans with his unceasing grief, the great sorrow, the broken heart that he has for his own people, the Jewish people. It would be easy for for Paul to say, forget them, right? When Paul's preaching and they say, we're not going to receive the gospel, Paul says, okay, then fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he does. But the next town he goes to, he goes first to the synagogue. And throughout his career, that is his methodology, To the Jew first was not just historical, it was Paul's commitment. And by the way, to those who say, yes, the church started, as Jesus said, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, right? You start with the Jewish people and then you work your way out. Historically, that's exactly what happened. So the the gospel went first to the Jews, but they rejected that. So so then the church became a a Gentile church. But I want you to know that in Romans 1.16, that verb that Paul used is, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed is a present tense verb. I am not ashamed. Not I was not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is a present tense verb. It is the power of God for salvation. And if that is a present tense verb, then so is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jewish lineage is traced through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you have the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you can claim to be ethnically Jewish. But Paul is very clear that it's not your physical descent that matters for eternity. And aren't you glad of that? Who chose your parents here? Did anybody here choose who your parents were, what family you were going to be born into? None of us get to choose that. But Paul earnestly prays for Israel's salvation because Jewish people don't have a get-out-of-hell-free card based on their DNA. 
But in every generation, God has a righteous remnant among the Jewish people who are the children of promise, exercising Abraham's faith. God chose Israel to be a people for his own possession, a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles. Let's go to uh, the Romans 11 slide. The question, if Jewish people have persisted so long in rejecting Messiah, has God rejected them? Some teach God is through with the Jews. Paul says it can't happen. Because of Israel's persistence in disbelieving, is it possible that God has rejected them? Give me just a second here. I have a technical difficulty. Okay, now we're good. All right. So, since Old Testament days, especially during Babylonian exile, rabbinic Judaism developed, and there was an emphasis on works-based relationship. We're back a slide or two. I had uh, booted the, a former version of this. I worked on it this morning and gave them the updated one and pulled up the old one. So that's my bad. Scripture is clear. Salvation is not by keeping rules. Whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile, it's not try harder to do better. Can I just tell you something as a, as a preacher's kid in an evangelical church? And someone who's grown up and been blessed in so many ways, the speakers that I've heard, the professors I've been privileged to study under, the books that I read, the radio broadcasts that I've heard. And one thing that I've noticed, I've become more sensitive to over the years, is how many of our messages sound like try harder to do better. Try harder to do better. Folks, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not try harder to do better. Yes, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That verse is in the Bible, but it doesn't say that we work for our salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith for both Jews and Gentiles. In every generation, God has a righteous remnant among the Jewish people. These are the children of promise. Did you catch that song, the Getty song? We are the children of the promise. And nobody had to check to see your birth certificate to see what your parentage was before you could be allowed into the forever family of faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of faith to all who believe. And he was pronounced the father of faith before he was circumcised. Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, and circumcision doesn't come as the sign of the covenant until Genesis 17. Romans 10 ends on a sad refrain. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
You know, it matters how we read these scriptures. All day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Sounds a whole lot different than than the way in which Jeremiah pronounced judgment upon the Jewish people. Lamentations, mourning, the weeping prophet with tears in his eyes. This echoes Yeshua's lament on Palm Sunday. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You who have killed prophets, you stoned the ones who were sent to you. How often I would have taken you under my wings like a mother hen protecting her chicks. You would not. But if the if the Jewish people have persisted for so long, all day long, I've stretched out my arms. Is there not a point at which God says, I'm so done with you? He reaches that point. You, you read in the prophets, I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce. I was going to destroy you. Ezekiel chapter 20. Just read God's litany of history and how over and over and over and over again Israel disobeys, disbelieves, is idolatrous, prostitutes herself with the idols of the Canaanites. But God says, I didn't do it for my name's sake. Folks, this is not about Israel. Hear me clearly. This is not about Israel. This is about Israel's God. Has God rejected them? Some teach, yes. Paul says, Meganoito, it can't happen. May it never be. Let's look at Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul puts himself in the witness stand in Romans 9. He says, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, Holy Spirit. He pulls into state's evidence the rich treasure chest of the spiritual blessings that God has inundated Israel with. And now he brings himself as state's evidence. You want proof that God's not finished with the Jewish people? Look at me. Paul says, I am Jewish. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm a believer. God's grace has touched my life. I was a persecutor of the church, and now I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. God is not finished with the Jewish people. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul is a great defense attorney. He brings exactly to the fore the things that people are thinking in the jury box. I say then, God has not 
rejected his people. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. The prophet of Israel pleading with the God of Israel against the people of Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left. And they want to kill me. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself. The Holy One of Israel says, I have kept for myself, not just that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal because they are so faithful. No, God says, I have kept for myself those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The work of God's sovereign grace is a mystery to us. And those who think they can easily explain it, I think have yet, not yet begun to grasp the depth of the mystery of God's sovereign grace. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God's gracious choice. God is not a tyrant in heaven. He is a loving father. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You cannot admix grace and works. It's either by works Good luck with that, or it's by grace. Thank God for that. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. He's quoting Moses at the end of Moses' life as a 120-year-old man. Moses is saying, I know your hearts. I know what's going to happen. God is giving you a spirit of stupor, eyes that will not see. God charges Isaiah, says, you go and you speak. I'm closing their ears. I'm closing their eyes. They're not going to receive, but you go and preach. God is faithful. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Moses, Isaiah, David, Paul knows the scriptures. Paul teaches the scriptures. Paul quotes the scriptures as evidence of who the God of Israel is. I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Did they? I mean, really, did they? Meganoito, God forbid it can't happen. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Think about this. Because of Israel's disbelief and disobedience, God throws wide the gates of mercy to the Gentiles. Is this plan B for God? No, this is not plan B. This is all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We have early indications of this. We have Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, a, a pagan priest who says, now I know that Jehovah is the true and living God. We have Ruth, the Moabitess. Your people will be my people. Yes, but your God, my God. We have Rahab, the harlot. We have these sprinklings, these mercy drops in the Old Testament. We have Solomon praying in the dedication of the temple. For the Gentiles who come, there's a court of the Gentiles. This is not plan B, it's, it's plan A, but the, the door is wide open now. In the book of Acts, we, we see an Ethiopian eunuch. He's kind of, kind of a, an early indicator. And we have Cornelius and Paul, I mean, Peter having to have a vision from God that it's okay to go to a Gentile's house. 
and, and to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the, the early church council, the first council in Acts chapter 15 is, what do we do with all these Gentiles? These Gentiles who are coming to believe in the Jewish Messiah, don't, don't they have to become circumcised? Don't they have to come under the yoke of the Torah? Don't they have to become Jews in order to be accepted by God? And the answer is no. No. Evermore, no. Paul says, if you're circumcised, say circumcised. If you're uncircumcised, don't get circumcised. The gospel is equally to the Jew and to the Gentile. If their transgression is riches for the world, their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Now we get to the applicational part of this for us, for we who are not Jewish. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul says, I want you guys to be force, force multipliers. Yes, my job description, my business card says apostle to the Gentiles. But my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. And I want as you, as Gentiles, move from darkness to light, from death to life, that my Jewish kinsmen will see the peace and hope and joy that being rightly related to the living God of Israel brings to your life. And they say, I want that. How many of our Jewish friends have said to us, you know the Bible better than we do? Well, of course, you don't study the Bible. I want my Jewish friends to want what I have. But I say to them, look, it's yours. It was yours first. What I have was given to you. It's a Jewish gospel. It's a Jewish Messiah. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. And now we get to this wonderful picture of the olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant against the branches. Now there's a lot of scripture that the church has ignored over history. And this is certainly one. You look at the history of church-synagogue relations for 2,000 years, and you see a lot of examples of the church provoking the Jewish people, but not very many of them provoking the Jewish people to jealousy. Don't be arrogant, but if you are arrogant, remember that's not you who support the root. The root supports you. You will say that branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited by f but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches who went off in disbelief and disobedience, then he will not spare you either. There is no substitute for being controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's only one way to God, and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. The, the warning passages in Scripture 
I don't understand to mean that my salvation is going to be lost. I know I was raised in a theology that taught me that I needed to persevere in order to be saved. But the scripture teaches that those who persevere will be saved. And I'm so grateful that the God who saves is the God who keeps. My salvation doesn't depend upon me, and my ability to persevere doesn't depend upon me. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural olive branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. This mystery. Paul's helping us to understand something that was not previously known so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. There's no room for Gentile arrogance against the Jewish people, and there's certainly no room for Gentile, for Christian anti-Semitism. When I see those two words together, Christian anti-Semitism, it makes my skin crawl. You believe in the Jewish Messiah and you don't like the Jewish people? Really? A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial. Not every... Jewish heart is blinded. And it's temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Don't have time to unpack what the different views of that are, but regardless of what view you take, it's temporary. There's coming a day, Paul says, when all Israel will be saved. And unless you think that Paul is double-talking here, because earlier he says that there are Jewish people who are separated from God because they don't believe In fact, he's willing to go to hell if it were possible for their salvation. And why would he say that if all Israel's going to end up being saved? So he's not talking about every physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be in heaven. That is absolutely not true, categorically not true. What percentage of Old Testament folks who are born of the tribes of Israel are going to be in heaven? Only God knows, but it's certainly far less than 100%. So what does he mean when he says all Israel will be saved? Again, because of time. I don't have time to talk about all the different views of eschatology, but in my understanding, there is coming a day. Zechariah 12.10 is very clear. They will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their firstborn. In my understanding, this is what happens at the end of the great tribulation, that 70th week of Daniel chapter 9, the time of Jacob's trouble. When the Lord Jesus returns in power and great glory, this time not veiled in human flesh, coming meek and humble on a donkey, he's coming on a white horse. Oh, yes, he is. And his feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. And the Jewish people will see him and they'll say, it was the pierced one. It was Yeshua, the one whose name we wouldn't speak, the one the Talmud has put in the lowest portion of hell. No, he's the Messiah, the son of David. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, Paul says, they're enemies for your sake. I could tell you stories, current stories, of the opposition of rabbinic Judaism to those 
who would put their faith and trust in Jesus from their own community. There are whole groups that are formed, anti-missionary groups. There are people who are trained and their, their entire career is spent on countering the gospel. There are some who are making death threats against believers in Israel today. I know of no one who's been killed in our generation for believing in Jesus. But things are getting warmer, folks. As the Messianic movement grows, as more and more Jewish people hear and receive the good news that Messiah has come, those who are bound to keep the Mosaic tradition as taught by the rabbis have more and more opposition. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. I don't tell you these things about those who are in opposition so that you will have anger toward them in your heart, but that you would have pity for them in your heart. To know that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Yeshua is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But in that day, there are those who will bow the knee before they are sent to everlasting punishment. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And just as he closed that tremendous section in chapter 8 with his wonderful hymn of praise, so after pouring out his heart to the church in Rome, about God's enduring love and his steadfast loving kindness, his chesed faithfulness to the Jewish people. He cannot help himself but to close with praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You think you can figure them out? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways. They're unfathomable. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Classic ending to a classic text. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. This is not about Israel, folks. This is about Israel's God. It's about his reputation. It's about his glory. We proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people so that as they hear, they have opportunity to be saved. God is glorified. So what? If God can break his promise to Israel, then what about us? It's not about Israel. It's about Israel's God. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. Whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates, God is glorified whenever the gospel is preached regardless of the response of the hearer. What about you? What about you? How is the Spirit of God dealing with your heart today? Are you stone cold? Are you here because you have to be here? Are you here struggling with the goodness of God because of the pain in your own heart? Life is tough. I promise you it's going to get harder. I promise you it's going to get harder. But it gets better. Oh, it gets better as we surrender our will to his. So up on the screen are some of the things that we offer. If we can be a help to you, we'd sure love to do that. But I want to close with this story. That's what time I should be gone. And pastor said, shoot for the moon. 
Oh, no, I guess it was shoot for noon, and I'm already past that, so. <laughs> so, there's a wealthy man, I mean, the wealthy man in town, who's got the chauffeur and the big limousine, and for whatever reason, his driver has to get off of the highway because of a detour, and they go to a part of town that he doesn't normally go to. And for whatever reason, he looks up from his newspaper, and he's glancing out the window as they pass a scene that troubles him. He sees a young boy who's, who's dumpster diving. He says, stop. His driver stops and he rolls down the window. He says, are you okay? The little boy looks at him and says, I'm okay. He says, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting my lunch. You're getting your lunch? Well, where are your parents? I ain't got no parents. You have no parents? Well, where's the rest of your family? I ain't got no family. You have no family? Would, would you come with me? And he instructs his chauffeur to go to the police station, and there's an investigation, and sure enough, this boy is an orphan, and for some time, he's been left on his own, and he's just making his way in the streets. He's dressed in rags and eating out of a dumpster. And the heart of compassion of this man is such that he says, this cannot be, and so he adopts this boy into his home. And this boy is sitting at his table, eating sumptuous meals with a butler and a chef. He's dressed in excellent clothes and going to the finest school in town. And this goes on for weeks and months. And as they're sitting at the table, he notices that his newly adopted father, whose attention and kindness to him is unstinting. But when he glances at this portrait up on, up on the mantle, he sees that his father's eyes missed over and there's a sadness that comes over his countenance. And one day the boy works up his courage and says, Dad, who is that boy? And the father says, well, you haven't met him, but he's your brother. He's my natural born son. My wife died in childbirth giving birth to him. And I love that boy, and I gave him every benefit just as I'm giving to you. But when he became an older teenager, he decided, I don't want to be under dad's authority anymore. And so he left. And I don't know where he is. He's out there somewhere. <laughs> and the young boy says, in his own heart, I'm going to go find my brother because dad loves him so. And folks, you and I are the dumpster divers. And we've been adopted into God's family. And the natural born son represent the Jewish people. And they are alienated from him And we can sit at the rich banquet table that God has spread before us and enjoy the blessings of being his child. Or we can get up from the table and say, it matters to dad, it matters to me. May God help us to have his heart for the Jewish people. God bless you.